0: beginning a uh, series this morning in the Ten Commandments, book of Exodus, chapter 20. This morning we'll introduce the Ten Commandments, talk about some of the, the introductory issues, and then we will begin walking through the actual ten starting next week, and then when we get To the end of the series, want to take a week and just look at how Jesus is the fulfillment of these, how he has fulfilled these, and so that's kind of the plan going forward. It'll take us into early December uh, as we work through the fall through these Ten Commandments. Often when people think of the Ten Commandments in our culture, they think of monuments and displays. They think of the things that are, are so often bickered about in our culture and legislated about, displays historically came after the Protestant Reformation, churches beginning to display the Ten Commandments in their buildings. Here in the middle of the last century, the, the push was to begin to display them in courthouses and school buildings. And of course, we've seen in the early part of this century, just lawsuits and court rulings that have sought to remove displays of the Ten Commandments. Back in 2014, a man drove his car into a, a, a Ten Commandments monument in Oklahoma, and that was on the state capitol grounds, and the same guy 2017 did it in Arkansas. And now, two years later, there is a federal court case that's going on, getting started actually this fall, over whether or not Arkansas can put that monument back up. There is, there is wisdom In proclaiming God's word to a lost world, there is always wisdom in proclaiming, holding out the truth of God to people who need to hear of him. But when God gave the Ten Commandments, he began by saying, I am the Lord your God. He gave the Ten Commandments to his people. Uh, While they carry instruction and conviction to the world, they are ultimately intended for us. It is God speaking to his people for those whom he has redeemed. And so this morning we take this up and we'll get to Exodus chapter 20 if you want to turn there and we'll be looking at the first couple of verses. But one of the reasons we've decided to do the Ten Commandments here is we've spent the summer looking at the New Testament book of Galatians. And and, and Galatians, perhaps more than any other book in the New Testament, has this emphasis on the law. Twenty-eight times in Galatians, Paul references that phrase, the law. Um, Just some for instances from the book of Galatians that we saw from chapter 2, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law. If righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Chapter uh, chapter 3, verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us in 3.13. And then, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed, and finally, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Just five examples out of 28 that are in that book of Galatians. And so it seemed fitting that we would actually take some time to talk about God's law and the application of it. In a broad sense, when we speak of the law, the Jewish reader would have thought of the law as being the, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The Torah, the word Torah has the the meaning to it of law or directive of some kind. And so uh, in the broad sense, that's what we mean by the law. More specifically, though, the New Testament is really talking about the particular instruction that God gives through Moses to the people of Israel that begins unfolding here in Exodus chapter 20 as he begins to give what What is his law to those that he has just delivered out of slavery in Egypt? He is giving them his his will. Uh, God's law shows us what it means to obey and to disobey God. We know that sin existed before the law. God didn't need to reveal his law for sin to exist. Romans 5 makes that clear, that sin existed Prior to the giving of the law, that goes back to Adam in the garden and his rebellion against God. Sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, Romans 5.13. But Romans 5 also makes it clear that the law becomes sort of a, a distinctive mark now in God's work with man. It says that death reigned from Adam to Moses, and it's talking about how now with Moses becomes this, this touch point, this giving of the law that now clearly delineates for man, this is the will of God. this is what God prohibits. this is what God calls you to do in, in, in obedience to him. Uh, for you and I, especially now that we've just finished the book of Galatians, we looked at some sampling of verses, th- there's a temptation perhaps, To think of the law in in sort of negative tones, um, because we see so much in Galatians that the law was being misused by false teachers, trying to use it as a tool to be justified. If you just obey the law, you can be right before God, And, and Galatians is to rebut that and say, no, it is by faith in Christ that one is justified. But it's tempting, perhaps, to come out of Galatians and not see the law in its glory, either, for what it serves, for what benefit it serves. Um, It it does not justify. It holds a curse for people. It keeps people captive. We we read that. If you are not, if you belong to God, if you have God's Spirit in you, you are not under the law. We read in in Galatians chapter 5. In fact, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15, in the passage where Paul is talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and why that is so paramount to our faith, near the end of that in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. He's making a connection there between the law and sin, in particular talking about what it is for the unbeliever, how the law has this way of of sort of inciting sin, if you will. We know that God's law identifies sin. It it shines the light on it, and it shows how far short you and I fall of, of God's perfection. But it also, for the unbeliever, seems to incite sin. And that's because the unbeliever, all of us who were at one time not trusting in Christ, we're lawbreakers by nature. We were all children, if you will, will, who are given rules and who say, I want to break those rules. Now that you've told me what I'm not supposed to do, I'm going to go ahead and do it anyway. And that, and that's what he's talking about when he talks about the power of sin is the law and that the law has this effect on the unbeliever who says, I, I don't want to submit to God. I don't want to do what he wants to do. I want to do what I want to do. And so, therefore, the, the law now becomes... Um, this connection to sin in that it's it, it sort of it, the sin, sinner seizes on the opportunity to break God's law, to defy who God is, now knowing what his will is, becomes a point of rebellion. So we have all that about the law, and yet Romans 7.12 says, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Romans 7 is the very same passage in which Paul had said how um, sin seizes on, on the law, sin in the unbeliever's heart, and, and and sort of incites him toward that. And yet he says in Romans 7, but the law is holy. It's holy and righteous and good. It's not the law that kills me. It is my own sinful bent. It is my heart that is against God. It is the unbelieving uh, resistance to God that leads one into sin and death. 1 Timothy 1, 8 and 9 says, now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding that the law is not laid down for the just, uh, the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient. It's talking there that the law is, is to help the disobedient see that they need something, that they are falling short. And, and this is why they need the law to understand how much they need redemption and they need to be saved. And so, he, But he's saying in 1 Timothy 1, there are good and useful purposes for God's law. How does that relate to us as believers in Jesus Christ? If you are trusting in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are not under the condemnation of the law. The law no longer holds you captive. The law has built in curse to it in that the disobedience to the law, breaking God's law, brings about the penalty of death. That is the curse of the law. And yet, because you have been set free by Jesus Christ, you are no longer under that. The, the sinless one, came and gave his life as a ransom for you. He fulfilled the law completely, obeyed it, fulfilled it, gave his life as a ransom. He endured the cross, the the curse, I should say, that the law demands while he was on the cross. He endured that curse in our place so that he might give to us pardon, so that he might set us free from captivity to the law and the curse of death. And so his, his resurrection then verifies his victory over that. So God's law, Scripture says, is good when rightly used by God's people. The question then is how, as God's people delivered from sin, delivered from captivity to the law by the grace of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, how do we relate to the law? And I want to give you three words this morning, just by way of introduction to this this series, three words to help us think about our relationship to the law. And they would be redemption, restraint, and reflection, redemption, restraint, and reflection. We know God's law exposes our guilt. We've studied that in Galatians, that it is there as this sort of tutor to bring us to to see that we are sinners who fall short. It makes it very clear in Scripture that the law shows sin, but it is an external code. The law itself does not have the power to change us or transform us. All it can do is lay the groundwork that says we desperately need something to save us. We desperately need someone outside of ourselves to rescue us because the law has condemned us. It has shown me that I, am, I, am, I, I fall way short of the perfection and holiness of God and I am in need of rescue. And so when you come to the New Testament and it talks about unbelievers, it uses terms like dead in sin in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2, dead in our transgressions, in, in emphasizing the, the helplessness of our state and our need of rescue. Jesus said, I have come to save the lost. I've come to seek and to save the lost in Luke chapter 19. Dead, lost, First, 2 Corinthians 4 speaks of the fact that the unbeliever's mind is blinded by sin, uh, that he is not able to see, he's not able to think clearly on these things. Scripture emphasizing again and again the helpless state that we are in and the need we have for rescue because we have been condemned by God's law. God's law shows us that, that I, I can't do it, I can't keep it, I can't perfectly obey it, so someone else is going to have to obey it for me or someone else is going to have to rescue me from its curse. And so the law points us to redemption. The, the, the law points us to the fact that we need God to save us from sin. We need the lawgiver to act in some substitutionary way, to act on our behalf in order to rescue us. And so God's law, as we go through this, should be a perpetual reminder to us of how glorious redemption in Christ is, how amazing it is. That God who made us and established his law, whose law we have broken repeatedly, now also then provides the means by which we would be rescued and redeemed from the curse of that law. John Bunyan wrote this. He said, "...the man who does not know the nature of the law cannot know the nature of sin, and he who does not know the nature of sin cannot know the nature of the Savior." It's hard to understand what it is I need to be saved from if I don't understand that I have already broken God's law repeatedly. And so when I read God's law, particularly when I'm working through the Ten Commandments, I can can begin to check the boxes one by one of those which I have broken. And and even to the point that Jesus makes it clear in the Gospel of Matthew that it's not merely external actions, but it's heart attitude too, so that even those who haven't committed adultery but have committed lust or those who haven't committed murder but have had anger in their hearts are still guilty of breaking the law. The heart attitude has still defied what God has prescribed, still defied God's will. And so as I walk through this, I, I come to the realization that the perfect judge who made me, who wrote the law, who who delivered the law, whose law is perfect and who has kept it perfectly, I have violated, and yet that judge took my guilt on himself, bore the wrath deserved for my sin in order that he might give to me pardon, that he might remove from me the condemnation that I deserve. And so as we walk through God's law, part of it should be an exercise in seeing ourselves in remembering our guilt and remembering the wonders of redemption how sweet it is that we are a people if you are trusting in Jesus Christ who have been rescued from the deserved curse of the law. So, redemption. The second thing is restraint. There's a restraining influence that comes from God's law. We know as believers in Jesus Christ that the power to obey God comes from Christ now living in us through His Spirit. This is not us on our own and striving. This is God at work in us to will and to work His good purpose. So, so Christ now dwells in us through His Spirit and empowers us to resist evil and obey God. The Spirit accomplishes that work through several different means, the the fellowship we have with other believers who help us to see areas in our lives, but also through the Word of God, by teaching us the Word of God and by spelling out God's law. And so the Spirit uses these Ten Commandments, that uses God's law to help us to see what is evil, and to help restrain us from it, to help bring about that conviction that says, no, I, I shouldn't think like this. I shouldn't act like this because I understand from Scripture that this is not pleasing to my Redeemer. So the Ten Commandments instruct us. They, they deter us from disobedience. They're like they're They're like Christ has put us on this, has given us his righteousness, so we are on this path of righteousness. And and the Ten Commandments help like guardrails to help us to, to walk in that path, to know what it is that God prescribes for us and what he also forbids for us. After Moses recited to the Israelites the Ten Commandments in verse 20 of Exodus 20, he said, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. He's exhorting them and saying, one of the reasons that you're getting this is so that now you would live differently, so that now you would know what sets you apart from the world so that you may not sin. This is why he's giving us this instruction. And so for us as New Testament believers, it's very much the same function. Except that we have the indwelling spirit of God, the the transformation of the heart that goes on under the new covenant that now enables our obedience, that allows us to look at these Ten Commandments and see what it is that, that God has called us to and be restrained from evil. this the, the, In very practical terms, the, the Ten Commandments, as we'll see when we go through them, are two sections. The one, how we relate to, worship, love, serve God, how we respond to God. And the second half is, is how we respond to one another. It, it, what, why, when Jesus summarized the law, he said two commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself, is really a summary of those two halves of the Ten Commandments. By giving us that, God has helped us to to restrain evil by knowing how it is we are to worship him, how we are to avoid idolatry, to walk away from the the idols of the heart that would draw us from him, how we are to love others and be honest with them and not dishonest, not adulterers, not covetous, those sorts of things. So it, it has that restraining influence. And and, and it also has, and we talk about this often with the Ten Commandments, with the displays of the Ten Commandments, it, it does have a restraining influence in the culture, but it's not merely the words or the plaques that do that. It is the restraining influence of the Spirit through His people as we strive to live that out by God's grace, Jesus Christ, before he was crucified, said to his disciples in John sixteen eight that he would send his spirit to his people to be in us, and that the spirit would convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. How does the spirit convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment? Through the, through the speaking forth of God's truth, which, which ultimately is through his people. As, as we proclaim, as we live out God's truth, then it has that restraining influence. And so the things that God forbids in the Ten Commandments, as the Spirit works in us to stay away from those things, that's one of the means God uses to give a living display of what righteousness looks like. This is this is what, what, what Christ fulfilled, and helping us to see that not only restrains evil in us, but also has an influence on the culture. We know this intuitively. Because we know how the culture responds when the opposite takes place. When some leader of some Christian ministry commits adultery or steals from the ministry, we know how the world responds at that point. Not only do they say, oh, look at the hypocrites, but they say, oh, that that whole Ten Commandments thing, you guys really have a problem with that. It must not mean all that much to you. Well, well, the opposite is true, too. When we, by God's enabling in the Spirit, live out the Ten Commandments, there's also that convicting, restraining influence that is at work in our culture through the body of Christ, through living these things out. So, redemption, restraint. And the last one I would just say to you is reflection. There's a quote from a a commentator on on the Ten Commandments, J.V. Fesco, and he writes this, Christ perfectly fulfilled the obligations of the law. If we are to reflect the image of Christ, the law will assist us by showing us what we are supposed to look like, right? So we are called to Christ-likeness. Christ fulfilled the law, so we should understand the law and seek to strive by God's enabling to live that out. Romans chapter 8, 29 says, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son there's there's a purpose in saving us not only to redeem us but to display the image of Christ through us we saw it back in galatians chapter 4 where paul is talking about how i anguish over you until christ is formed in you both speaking to the fact that we are imperfect displays of the life and love, and righteousness, and sacrificial service, and grace of Jesus Christ. We are imperfect displays, but we are displays nonetheless. We are showing people what what Christ looks like. That's why we we are the body of Christ, so that people, when they, they come to Grace Bible Church, should be getting a glimpse of what the life of Christ looks like as they look at his people, and we get our understanding of that by looking at things like the Ten Commandments, by understanding what it is that God has prescribed for his people. We see the world nowadays often try to reinvent Jesus in its own image. So so Jesus would would embrace this or Jesus would do that. We know Jesus would accept this. Jesus would be tolerant and and Jesus would, all kinds of things that, that society would say. Jesus wouldn't Jesus wouldn't condemn sex outside of marriage because Jesus just wants people in loving relationships and Jesus loves everybody anyway. Well, well no, because actually we've got what Jesus fulfilled, God's law that says do not commit adultery. There's there's boundaries and there is God's plan for marriage that is clear in scripture. And so when we we violate that then we're we're running contrary to the image of Christ because this is the the law that Christ fulfilled. When when people say things like well God God doesn't Jesus doesn't take sides on the abortion debate. We can go to this passage and say no Jesus Jesus stands for life. He says do not kill. There, there's a statement here that gives us a, a clear indication of what the will of God is and what it is that Jesus fulfilled. Jesus would just let you do Whatever feels best to you. Well, But no, I can, I can look here and say, no, God's law stands, Jesus Christ fulfilled it. And so I understand that there is a God to whom I must give my worship, to whom I must serve. God's law shows us that there are objective measures of right and wrong and good and evil. And, and we can't, the culture can't take and impose its own values on Jesus and say, well, this is, this is the Jesus that I want. Rather... God has said, here is my will. Here is what I've commanded. Here is what Jesus fulfilled perfectly. We, by living that out then, reflect that. We are a reflection, not only of the image of Christ, but of the law that Christ fulfilled. If you think about the setting into which Exodus comes, we'll we'll look at the the prior history in a moment, we'll think about that, which was God's deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt. But think about what's what he's preparing them for. He has them in the wilderness and he is preparing them to move into this promised land that is surrounded by pagan cultures, cultures that have no fear of God in these lands, that carry on in in immorality. And, And as his way of equipping them to walk into these dark lands, he is now prescribing, this is what I call you to. You will not bow down to idols. This is what marriage will look like. This is how you'll relate to other people and how you'll relate to me because of exactly the setting into which they were going, the historical context into which they were walking. He's equipping his people with his law so that they would reflect his glory and his holiness, so that the nations around would see something unusual about them, something different. Uh, Thomas Watson, Puritan writer back in the 17th century, describes God's moral law, these Ten Commandments, as a beautiful strand of pearls that adorns his people. He says, the moral law is the copy of God's will, our spiritual directory. It shows us what sins to avoid, what duties to pursue. Simple statement, but it is the idea that it... God's law helps us better to understand how it is we reflect the holiness of God, how we live differently in this culture so that people see something different. So as we go through these over the next 10 weeks, one of the things I want to encourage you to do, one of the things I'm going to be doing is praying for God's grace to obey these things. We want to live these out so that people would see Christ in us. And we need to be praying as we go through, God, give me the grace to obey these. Not because obedience saves. We know it doesn't. It is God's grace that saves through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But because this is one of the good and lawful purposes of the law that Paul was speaking about to Timothy, that is that the law would better enable us to reflect the greatness of our God, the holiness of our God, and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So God's law causes us to celebrate our redemption all the more. It's used by God's spirit to restrain from sin and by God's grace, as we strive to obey it, it allows another means of reflecting God's righteousness and holiness to the world. Let's read the first two verses of Exodus 20. We'll just look at these two verses quickly this morning, just to help set the background for what we're going to do. Exodus 20 verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. These two verses are the prologue, the the preface to the Ten Commandments. They, They don't always make it on the plaque. They don't always make it on the display, and yet You can't have the Ten Commandments without these two verses. You can't separate this context. These two verses are crucial to understanding the Ten Commandments. These two verses establish the the context into which God gives the Ten Commandments. In fact, I would suggest to you that without verses 1 and 2 the next verses just basically can become sort of religious practice. If you don't have verses one and two, then it looks like just a list of do's and don'ts. I'm going to try to do these things. I'm hoping I obey them and I'm hoping I get it all right. And and don't mess up too badly. These two verses, this preamble, if you will, to the 10 commandments sets us straight. First thing it does is it identifies who the lawgiver is. Starts with, and God spoke all these words. First thing, who is the lawgiver? God spoke. Moses, in the midst of this narrative of all that God is doing, pauses at this point, having all of Scripture we know is God breathed. All of Scripture is God's word coming to us. It is given to us through human authors, it is led by His Spirit so that it is fully God's word. And yet, at this moment, Moses in particular singles out and says, and God spoke all these words. So there's no equivocation on any of what follows at this point as to whether or not somebody's mixing in stuff. This is God speaking clearly to you and I. In fact, Exodus 31, 18 toward the end of God, delivering his law says, and God gave to Moses when he had finished speaking on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Scripture could not be any more explicit when it says, this is God speaking. This is God. These commandments are his revelation to us. All these words are his. In fact, the very Things that the, the, the stones, the tablets that Moses brought down to the people were inscribed by the finger of God in some way that you and I can't even begin to fathom how that, that looked. God is spirit, and yet he inscribed that and gave it to Moses. It is, it is to say that this law takes with it, bears with it, the, the, the lawgiver, and the lawgiver is God, is the eternal triune creator and sustainer of the universe. This is his will. These commandments are a further unveiling of his character. It is to show us more about God. This law derives from his character, one who is infinitely holy and who is eternal. The Israelites who are standing at the base of Mount Sinai don't need to be compelled about this. We see it from the narrative in, in the prior chapter. They're not in need of somebody explaining to them uh, the law came from god because they are standing at the base of mount sinai and they are seeing this remarkable scene that is displaying god's power where there's this thick cloud it says the lord descends in fire on the mountain it is enshrouded in a cloud the mountain shook god's voice was like thunder to the point that the israelites are stepping back from the mountain saying to moses you got this one, buddy. You, you go up there and you talk to them. We're stepping back because they, they understand they are getting a sense for the power and the holiness and the majesty of God who is now descending into their midst. There's, there's no question in their minds about who this law is from. Moses is giving this to us for our benefit that we would understand that this law is from the eternal triune God of the universe, the one who came in power and greatness in the midst of the people. Psalm 19:7 says the law of the lord is perfect reviving the soul the testimony of the lord is sure making wise the simple the, the law Reflects the nature of the lawgiver. That's why we identify, why we spend time stopping at this beginning and saying God spoke all these words, because that then we read into that everything we know about who God is and the character of God, going all the way back to Genesis 1-1, and the pre-existent, eternal God, the fact that he was there before everything else was because he's eternal. And and all of that is to help us. To come with this with with reverence to this passage because we understand who the lawgiver is. With that comes then authority, because the the lawgiver is God. The law comes with his authority. In fact, he says his first words, "I am the Lord your God. I am Yahweh." It is a term of, of rule. It is a term of mastering. It is he he is the one who is over his people, he is the creator, and he is the sovereign ruler over mankind. He is stressing from the beginning this singular authority with which he can speak and say, here is my law because I am the Lord. I am the one that you ultimately are accountable to. He is the one who has made you, Therefore, he has the right to rule over you. And what he is doing here now is giving you his will. This is what he calls. He's he's making a claim on you and I with this law and saying, if you are my people, this is what I'm calling you to. The Israelites, again, understood that. There there was no question of authority at this point. They, they, They understood that it was God who had made them, God who had delivered them, and God well within his authority to instruct them. So when people today act as if, respond as if the Ten Commandments are old. They, they probably should have evolved over time. They should be more reflective of the character of the culture today. We can go right back here and say no, that, that is a rejection of the authority of the eternal, unchanging, triune God. Because this is what he has revealed and he did so by saying I am the Lord your God. When he says your God the pronoun there is a singular pronoun. Your, you, individually. A little grammar, right? First person pronouns, I, second person you. Singular, you, not you all. So like we often do in the New Testament when when Paul writes to the church and he says you all and and gives instruction. This is you, singular. Now, Grammatically, it could apply to the nation, but, but really, it, it has the idea still built within it because he's not saying it corporately in a plural sense. He's saying it singular. He is emphasizing in saying this, God's pers- personal relationship with each and every one of those people. I am the Lord, your God. I am your God. I am the one who, as he will go on and say the terms under which he is their God, he has redeemed them. He has delivered them. But he is stressing this this personal relationship. So the giving of the law then rests on this last point here on what God has done. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God's relationship with his people and the authority upon which he calls us to obedience is not simply the fact that he made us and sustains us. That's enough. The fact that he made the universe gives him the right to say these are the rules for the universe and and, and we should obey them. But he goes beyond that and the key to this whole passage, this is the, the part we need to grab for this morning that is of utmost importance is God calls his people to obedience on the basis of what he has already done for them. I have delivered you. I have brought you up out of Egypt. I have rescued you out of slavery. The God who gave his law to his people is not only our creator and Lord, he is our redeemer. He is the one who has rescued us. And so he's not giving the law. He he didn't give the law five years earlier when they were in Egypt and say, I'd like to get you out of slavery. So here's the rules. Obey them and I'll be back and I'll check in on you because they would have failed miserably and they would still be there. Instead, God says, I chose you. I redeemed you. I brought you out. Now, here is how you are going to live differently as a reflection of my righteousness, as a attitude of of, of gratitude for my redemption of you. This is what I'm going to do. Think about the first 19 chapters of the book of Exodus, And it is one display after another of God's power. Go all the way back to the beginning and and he's rescuing this small baby boy named Moses. And, and, And God does that purposefully because he's going to use Moses and send Moses to rescue his people. And then you walk through Exodus and it's just one display after another of God's power over creation. The plagues are all to demonstrate that God is sovereign. God can, can change things. He can make it dark when it's light. He can move locusts and frogs. He can do all these things that the Egyptian magicians tried really hard to sort of see if they could come up with an illusion that would look close, and they couldn't because God's power is over all of creation. And he's displaying that power all the way to the point that you come to the last of the plagues, and it is God's power over life and death to the place where now the firstborn Of those who are are not responding and not putting the blood on the doorposts will now die because God is sovereign. Why does he do all that? First, to display his power so that he might be glorified for who he is. But secondly, he's displaying all that power so that he can be merciful. It's all to bring to redemption his people. It's all to deliver and to rescue his people. God's infinite power is ultimately to lead his people out of bondage. And even as he's done all this and he's leading them out, what are the people doing? They're complaining. They're complaining even as they're being led out. This isn't going the way we want it to go. We should just go back. There's nothing here in their performance that's earning them anything. This is God in his grace delivering them. And God comes back to that now in Exodus 20, verse 2. And he says, all right, let me summarize the first 19 chapters in the history that we've just been through. I delivered you. I rescued you out of slavery. And now, now I'm giving you these commands that you now can follow as you strive to obey me out of gratitude, out of worship. God's law, the Ten Commandments, was never meant to show people how to earn salvation. It was given to a people that God had already saved so that they might then know what it is to walk in his image, so that they might know what it is to now live differently in the midst of a a pagan culture. So the Ten Commandments serve us the same way. They, They guide us to live differently they call us to God's holy standard and they say, this is different from the way the, wor- the world wants to dumb these down and water these down and do away with them. God is empowering us to live differently so the world around us would see something different. These teach us to fear and obey our loving God, to worship and adore him for who he is. The Ten Commandments continually remind us that we fall short and we must look to God for grace that we would worship him, that we would serve him and, and, and not succumb to the idolatry of our hearts, that we would love others and serve them as Christ did and not succumb to the selfishness, the inherent nature that, w- that we could be driven back to. We need God's grace. And so by looking at the law, we can't help but give thanks that God has rescued us, not only from the curse of the law, but from its judgment and from captivity to it and into freedom in Christ so that we may worship him freely and serve others and love them and people set free from the guilt and punishment of the law now. We now know that if if it weren't for the lawgiver providing the means to rescue the people, we would remain in this state of being lawbreakers from here on out, and we would have no opportunity to stand before our great God, but the lawgiver, he is the one who has, set us free in Christ and offers redemption through Christ so that we can now obey him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for being so explicit in your word. We see your holiness. We see your power and your might. And now, as we begin to approach these Ten Commandments, we are reminded of your instruction for us, your people. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ and myself that we would we would come before you with hearts full of thanksgiving and worship, because Lord, we, we know this, this list, these commandments, we have, we have defied them, we have put other things before you, we have been dishonest, we have been covetous, we have been bitterly angry, we have experienced these things that have made us lawbreakers. And you have shown us our need of a Savior, and we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he lived out the law perfectly and stood in our place and took the curse we deserve. Father, if there are any here this morning who are not trusting in Jesus Christ, we plead with you this day that you would bring them to see that these Ten Commandments are, are, there's no way they can keep them, that it's This is not a a ladder to try to get to heaven, to try to keep observing these things and hoping that somehow they can win your approval, but that your son came from heaven and gave himself in our place so that we might fully trust in him. Lord, would you in your kindness bring any this morning who are not trusting in Jesus Christ to turn from their sin, to repent, and to believe fully in Jesus and his death and resurrection. Father, thank you for the week before us remind us of these truths as we meditate on Exodus 20 and we think about the things that you have said in your word. Thank you for the grace of repentance so that when we fall short, we know we can confess and you are faithful and just to forgive. Thank you for the grace of your spirit's presence, enabling us to to walk in obedience to you. Thank you for your goodness to us and for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.